This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey guys, happy 2023 and welcome to another episode of the Allison Interviews podcast. This guest is somebody who is very special to me. I have spoken to Deepak Chopra a few times over the years. The first time I interviewed him was as a print journalist in 2007. And the thing that left a lasting impression on me that I will never forget, and I talk about it all the time, is that, and this was before I started my spiritual studies. So this was literally, I think, the year. The magic number for me was 32, okay? I always tell people that I divide my life up into two sections pre-32 and post-32, because at the age of 32, a lot of pretty significant things happened to me. Um, I met my ex-husband and eventually um, became a mother, but my grandfather passed away, and I started studying spirituality. It was just a very pivotal time for me. I would say that I didn't become an adult until the age of 32. So if anybody knew me before then, sorry. <laughs> but um, but yeah, Deepak Chopra was the first person who introduced to me the concept that there is no such thing as time other than in this three-dimensional reality that we are all living here on Earth right now. But in the grand scheme of things, time is actually an illusion. And he pointed out some really interesting things to me. And he's like, you know, if you're under a tight deadline and you're rushing to get things done, it feels like there's never enough time. If you're sitting and you're on pins and needles waiting for an answer about something, time just drags on and on and on. And it could literally be the same exact window of chronological time. And that really was, it was a monumental moment for me because it was the first time that my mind kind of went ding! And I was like, wait a second, maybe there's something more going on here than what I always thought as a kid and throughout my 20s. So that was, I don't know, I forgot to mention that actually during the interview to him, but that really, that pivotal moment was the aha moment that cracked my consciousness wide open to be able to then receive more information about who we are, where we come from, where we're going, and what's really going on here. And it was just really important to me. And then that was in 2007. And then I interviewed Deepak again, I believe in 2020. And I think it might have been just prior to the pandemic starting. And at that time, we spoke about his initiative called Never Alone, which is an initiative that's part of the Chopra Foundation. Never Alone is a community slash platform slash organization that Deepak started basically to turn the tide on this horrible epidemic of suicide that we are experiencing that seems to be exponentially getting worse in recent decades and recent years. And we've all seen the headlines, um, certain certain celebrities and public figures who have taken their own lives. But the, the numbers in general, just in the general population, are just astronomical. And 
I don't know. I don't know wh- where it comes from or or what's going on. I know that it, I've had mental health struggles. I'm sure everybody at some point in their life has had a mental health struggle. But if you go to his platform at neveralone.love, that's neveralone.love, there are a lot of resources and it's really a community. And there is an AI interface on neveralone.love that has actually prevented thousands of suicides. Where We talk about it, we go into it during the interview, so don't worry, this is just like a little teaser, but you'll, you'll learn more. It, it really blew my mind to hear how much this platform has helped and will continue to help people going forward. In this interview, we also talk about his 93rd book. That blew me away, and it's funny because <laughs> I said to him, okay, let's discuss your 93rd book, and as I'm saying that, my mind is just blown, and he didn't know how many books he's put out over the years, which I thought was even more hilarious, but his most recent book is called Living in the Light, and he co-wrote it with his longtime yoga instructor, a woman named Sarah Platt Finger, somebody who has been instructing him him on the practice of royal yoga for many, many years. And I always went around saying, I'm not a yoga person. I'm not interested in doing yoga. It's not for me. And when I read this book and I learned that yoga is not just the physical movements, yoga is actually a complete philosophy for living one's life mentally, spiritually, physically, emotionally. And that really turned the tide in terms of what I think about yoga and this book was extremely enlightening for me and I I think it will really be enlightening for you as well. So with all of that being said, (laughs) sit back, relax, and listen to this beautiful and very informative conversation with the great one and only Deepak Chopra. The first thing that I actually would like to ask you is why do you think so many of us are living in survival mode these days? It's the hypnosis of social healing that, you know, everything that we do um, is now directed by media, by entertainment, by social networks by commerce and by melodrama because it makes a lot of money for a lot of people. Um, that's my only um, my only response. I think if you want total honesty, um, mm-hmm. we're all insane. This is an insane world. And if you don't accept the insanity of it, then you are also declaring your own insanity. What do you say about a world that is sleepwalking to extinction? Climate change, mass migrations, mass pandemics, extinction of species, weaponized killing, drones, extreme polarization in politics, world leaders that are gangsters. So I was just, okay, I have a theory and tell me if you agree. I think that the majority of civilians, no matter where, whether it's the United States, Russia, Ukraine, wherever, I think that the majority, the wide majority of people want peace. But I think that government leaders want power. So the people want peace and the leaders want power. 
And I don't understand why, if the majority wants peace, why we are putting people um, in positions of service, which is their public servants, right? And they're supposed to represent us, but their main priority is power. So what are your thoughts? All leaders globally mm-hmm. are really interested in power mongering, influence peddling, cronyism, corruption, bureaucracy, and basically aggrandizing their own wealth and power. And we as a society are psychotic for electing them. It doesn't matter where we are. I mean, it, it, it took the psychosis of an entire population to create a Hitler. Right now, it takes the psychosis of an entire population to create a Putin. It almost, we almost did that with Trump. So, you know, you can't blame the leaders. They represent our collective insanity too, because we are so easily bamboozled by somebody who sounds convincing, but are totally insincere. So, you know, we have but to take what, a- But what do you do if you're given two choices? You can vote for this person or you can vote for this person. And if you don't vote for one of these people, you're part of the problem because you're going to cause the other candidate to win if you vote for a third independent party. Yeah, I, I don't have an answer for you, Alison. Yeah. It was Plato who said democracy is the rule of mediocrity. And then he also said that aristocracy can lead to tyranny. The only solution Plato had 2,500 years ago was a government leadership based on what he called statesman philosophers, which was the idea behind the republic. But we've never had it. So there you are. And you wrote an op-ed titled A Peace Proposal to World Leaders. What do you want to accomplish with this letter? And have any leaders reached out to you or have you reached out to any? Some leaders from the United Nations have reached out to me. It's very likely that I will be able to speak to the UN at some point soon. Uh, CNN International reached out to me and I've already um, uh, done that interview. It will be shown this week. I think what this might lead to, uh, the world leaders are not going to respond, especially those who are powerful and corrupt, but it could lead to Mm -hmm. a grassroots movement in the world. Right. We create a social conscience that transcends national boundaries. That, in fact, says we can employ these techniques for conflict resolution, peace, prosperity, health, well-being, and uh, climate sustainability, if we globally act as um, responsible citizens of the planet, not of Russia or China or the US, because every country is polarized right now, except those countries which are ruled by tyrants where there's polarization too, except those guys who are protesting have no voice. Iran, for example, there's no voice. You know, Afghanistan, what they're doing with the women, no voice. It's like total impotence. You know, the world is standing there impotently watching social justice, economic justice, gender justice, or justice of any kind go to the dogs. This is the first time, this is my third time interviewing you. And this is the first time that I hear anger in your voice. 
I didn't hear angry. anything from your voice the last time. I am not angry. I'm frustrated. I know. I know. Yeah, but I mean, I hear a different quality in your voice, and yeah. uh, and 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 it's interesting. You you write um, the, a passage from this open letter that you wrote. You wrote the notion that our worldview must be defended with violence is one of the most common and yet most irrational stances any leader can take. It's a total lack of imagination. You know, human beings have created split the bomb. They've landed men on the moon. They have navigated interstellar space. They have created artificial intelligence. They have unraveled the genome. They know everything about the brain, but they can't get over the fact that conflicts have to be solved with violence. This has been going on since medieval times. So we have medieval minds, emotionally mm -hmm. retarded, sorry, emotionally undeveloped, <laughs> and we have modern capacities for destruction. That's a perfect recipe for extinction. What do you think somebody like Vladimir Putin, how, how would you describe his personality type, his brand of ego, or what's going on with him spiritually? Have you thought about that at all? I have, but I think uh, uh, I would, you know, at the risk of sounding crazy, I would say he's a classical example of Freudian interpretation of impotence. He's taking his impotence out with this rage. And uh, uh, the poor guy is probably doesn't know what else to do. He's stuck in the first chakra of survival and safety mm -hmm. and impotence. That's what's going to happen happening with him. It might be um, speaking metaphorically, but it could be literal too. Is anybody past the point of awakening? Do you think that there are people where there's just no hope for them in this lifetime? Or do you think anybody can awaken? In order to change anything, you have to be first aware of that, you know. Mm -hmm. But uh, most of these world leaders, and Putin is not the only one, there are many. They are emotionally stopped developing at the age of eight years. I think that should be the criterion to run for president. You, you've stopped maturing after you're eight and you have to be male. You have to be male, you have to be emotionally undeveloped, then you can run for president. Why, eight, why at eight years? Why did you choose that number? It's kind of a number which... Uh, where people who are not going to go beyond belligerence mm -hmm. um, don't really go beyond belligerence. It only gets worse in teenagers, and after that, it's too late. I want to talk to you about forgiveness, and I want to ask you, in your life, what is the most difficult transgression that you personally have ever had to forgive? And what is your process for forgiveness? My transgressions were basically, I take the blame for them. I was very <clears throat> cocky in my arguments with uh, skeptics and militant atheists. And we got very engaged in very confrontational debates and I was always getting offended and actually losing it. 
till I decided that if I if I continued that way, I would probably be offended for the rest of my life. So I decided to forgive, not because the other deserves forgiveness, but because I deserve peace. So you forgive because you deserve peace, not because necessarily the other, you think the other person deserves forgiveness. Right. Why do you think in the 21st century, we have become a world of ideologues where each of us are so married to an ideology or a set of ideologies that we can't separate our identity from our political beliefs, religious beliefs, to the point where sometimes relationships are severed, um, people become very abusive, like on Twitter and things like that. What do you think is going on there? Alison, I think that's been the way it always was, except it was restricted to a tribe. Now the tribe is global. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we have all this stuff, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Instantly people feel connected to everyone, but also more lonely. So it's a very strange combination of being connected and feeling estranged at the same time. And you have people like, say, in India who don't have enough drinking water, Mm -hmm. but they have an iPhone. And then they watch what the bold and the beautiful or something from Hollywood. And then they say, why don't we have that? You know, so everybody's comparing uh, themselves with everybody else. Right. Um, you know, I like to say that we've all sacrificed ourselves for our selfies. So that's what's happened. We've lost our soul. Mm-hmm. You know, in the Bible, they used to say, what good does it do a human being to gain the whole world, but lose his soul? Right. Well, the, 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 Modern translation of that is, you've lost yourself for your selfie. Okay. And how do you define peace consciousness? Just as presence. As presence. That's it. Presence without judgment. Presence without judgment. Okay. And how how do you define judgment? In other words, is having a differing opinion judgment or is saying... I don't like you because we have a difference of opinion or a different lifestyle judgment. How do you define that? Right now, I would like to say there is something called moral judgment, which Mm -hmm. is where all the arguments happen. Because my idea of what's good might be conflicting with yours because of my ideology, whatever it is, religious, political, economic. So um, judgment is when you... Uh, label something as either sacred or profane. And that kind of uh, morality is the domain of cunning hypocrites. So I would say it's all right to say, you know, I like um, um, maybe iPhone better than Android, but even that's a judgment, but that you can get away with, you know, it's your preference. But when it comes to moral judgment, it's just jealousy with a halo. Okay. And do you think that you will be, when this journey is done, do you think you'll be returning to Earth for another incarnation? Or do you think this will be it? I think I'll say been there, done that. There are other <laughs> <laughs> there are other domains of existence right now, we are being told, um, with all this new uh, hyperbole with the intergalactic space, we are being told there are 2 trillion galaxies, 700 sextillion stars, uncountable habitable planets 
uncountable, maybe 60 billion habitable planets in just the Milky Way galaxy. The way they estimate that is by looking at a, what they call the Goldilocks zone. If a planet is too close to its sun, too hot, no life as we know it, too far away, too cold, no life as we know it, uh-huh. within a certain range, not only is it likely, it's more than probable, it's it's there. So, you know, there are other domains of existence that one could possibly visit and they're not locations in space-time, actually. They're frequency domains of consciousness. Right, right. And why do you think all of us got on the Earth line to come here? <laughs> it's called karma. <laughs> I'm like, sometimes I'm like, why did I get on this line? What was it's I thinking? Called, it's called karma. And there's a phrase, karma never loses an address. So right now, the karma's address is planet Earth. Okay. Um, I want to cover something that I know that you're very passionate about, and that is the epidemic of suicide. That uh, And it seems to be, uh, it seems to have reached epidemic proportions. And I think that when it comes to the most recent one that, that made headlines, so this was Stephen Boss, a.k.a. DJ Twitch, I think that what is very confusing and disturbing and triggering for people about his suicide is that in public, he always had a smile on his face. He was always dancing. People who knew him socially described him as filled with love and light and somebody who uplifted other people. Um, He had a great career, I'm sure he was doing, I mean, well, I can't say for sure, but one would think he was doing well financially, he had a beautiful family. And I think that when people see something that looks like a great life and the person takes it upon themselves to delete themselves from this planet, I think it, it triggers a feeling of, well, if he couldn't make it here, if he couldn't figure out how to be happy, do you think it's a matter of the fact that we fall for people's public facing image as opposed to who they really were and maybe what was really going on in their life that that his fans didn't know about there, even that his acquaintances didn't know about? I mean, how do you make sense of what, what happened there? In my experience, celebrities particularly in the entertainment business, but as celebrities of all kinds. We had Anthony Bourdain, who died died as well. Yep. They actually are much more insecure than the ordinary person uh, Mm -hmm. because they have to live up to the world's expectations. They're only as good as their last hit, you know. And once you become that level of celebrity where you feel everything you do has to be a hit. That creates chronic anxiety. So every every time I've worked with or known a celebrity, it's their insecurity that drives them. And they have to have one little negative experience to actually drive them to the edge of insanity. So that's, you know, I would say that the regular person actually mm-hmm. um, who is not in the public eye is usually much more secure than a celebrity. So it's the other way around. You know, uh, the celebrities need to learn how to be just like regular people. Is that possible? 
not with the pressures of society no you know i used to work with uh, people like michael jackson and i used to encourage them to embrace their insecurity and say the more you embrace your insecurity the more creative you will be if you become secure you lose your creativity when you say insecurity would you say it was that, do you mean it like synonymous to vulnerability vulnerability unpredictability uncertainty confusion bewilderment those are the things that one can actually use as anchors for creativity mm-hmm. if everything was certain and you were totally secure boy you'd be bored for the rest of your life good point what would you well, do what was was he able to embrace his insecurity yes until he got uh, addicted to drugs as a result of the insecurity of his physician who became his drug peddler right so with that being said if we're all on social media now aren't we all kind of putting ourselves on that unhealthy stage same depends, as what you just described it depends how you use your social media I mean my when I use social media it's only one intention how do I create that impulse for a critical mass of peace justice sustainability health and joy if I can't do that I don't use social media so social media is neutral how you use it depends on your emotional and spiritual development it's there to stay you can't get rid of social media right because it's part of our evolution if you if you don't participate you become irrelevant but now it's up to you how you want to use it yeah i mean i think it's important for someone to get clear in their intentions of why they're posting i mean for me i look at it as this i mean for me i say this is a marketing tool so i'm using this to market my career i'm using you know i'm i'm using it as a marketing tool i'm not using it as a self acceptance tool as a self esteem tool but i'm 48 i'm not 18 i'm not 28 um how can young people how can young people whose brains are not yet fully developed figure out how to integrate social media into their lives in a way that doesn't cause great harm emotionally you said you're using it for marketing yes yeah. but not some market piece we can market social justice we can market sustainability we can market health we can market joy uh, how many of us are doing that and as far as young people are concerned there is no education about in young people there never has been and there is not now any education that tells them anything about themselves about their body and how it functions about their mind about their emotions about their intellect about their spirit so there is no such thing as you know self realization or self knowing as part of our educational system and now because everything is so open out there you know there are no boundaries on the internet and uh, um everybody wants to be like everybody else so i think unless we have a radical shift in our way we see the world and our relationship to the world and our relationship to each other we need a literal death and a resurrection the old story the old meanings the old context the old paradigm the old ways of looking at the world have to literally die and a new yeah. 
context, a new story has to be born. And that can only be if we are the change we want to see in the world. There can't be any social transformation in the absence of personal transformation. I, I like what you said about using it as a marketing tool for peace, for positivity, for love, for community, which actually brings me to your community Um which is called Never Alone. And that's part of the Chopra uh, Foundation. It's an, it's one initiative part of the Chopra Foundation. So tell me how Never Alone works and how can people utilize it as a resource? So Never Alone is an initiative the Chopra Foundation mm-hmm. was co-founded with an actress called Gabriella Wright, whose sister, who was a recording artist, had died of suicide. And we realized that, you know, if people could be connected to each other through what we call the four A's, attention, deep listening, affection, deep caring, appreciation, deep gratitude, and acceptance, not trying to change anybody, um, but radical acceptance, accepting everybody as they are. And if we could connect them in a global community, we could actually prevent this pandemic. So we created an artificial intelligence emotional chatbot that now speaks to people. If you go on neveralone.love and you check out with PV, which was the which was the nickname of the recording artist PV, but we now also use it as an acronym, personalized interaction with intention. Uh, we found that young people, particularly teens, were more uh, comfortable talking to um, a a machine than to a person. This is the state of our world because machine doesn't judge them. People, they feel judge them. So the AI now on Never Alone has actually intervened in about 6,000 suicidal ideations and is having 20 million conversations simultaneously with people. And we are going to take it into Arabic, into Urdu, into Persian into European languages because we are going to create global online and offline communities with three things, service, selfless service, Mm -hmm. community, and some kind of daily spiritual practice. And if we can do that, I think we will have a very good chance of tackling this global pandemic, which is a tragedy of our times. So you can go to neveralone.love and there is an AI interface that you yeah. can actually It's called PV. With. There's other things there, mm-hmm. but neveralone okay. is where you go. Neveralone.love. Okay. And it's a non-judgmental AI. Yes. <laughs> programmed to be non-judgmental. It's programmed to be non-judgmental and it gets to know you faster than any other person. Even it gets to know you better than you know yourself. Wow. Okay. And didn't you, I think the last time we spoke, you also said something about taking this movement offline and creating different um, kind of self-sustaining communities. So how is that working? That is on uh, on target, but it's take effort. Also, you know, because these things cost money, we are, and cryptos had a bad rap in the last few weeks. Yeah. Come back. We are creating blockchain and cryptocurrency so no one has to pay for it, that everybody, we democratize well-being globally. So that's all in, uh, in process right now as we speak. Okay. And let's talk about, so li- uh, Living in the Light is your 93rd book. 
Is that right? 93rd that's book? What, that's what I'm told. That's what the publishers say. Yeah. That's what you're told. So you don't keep track. Well, <laughs> I get reminded so often that I know what it is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so Living in the Light, you co-wrote with your personal yoga instructor, Sarah Platt Finer. Finger. Um, Sarah Platt Finger. Finger. I'm sorry. Yeah. Sarah Platt Finger. Um, how long have you been working with her? Oh, uh, many years, many, many years. I have one other teacher, but she used to be right next door to where I am. She's moved to Florida recently. Okay. Uh, uh, I used to see her almost every day and for almost a decade. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we realized, both of us, that uh, people's idea of yoga is only restricted to the physical mm -hmm. aspects of yoga. But there are eight limbs of yoga the first two are have to do with social and emotional intelligence. The third limb is the physical postures. The mm -hmm. fourth is breathing techniques to regulate your autonomic nervous system. The fifth is understanding your body from the inside out and learning how to regulate it. It's called interoception. And then six, seven, and eight are meditation, focused awareness, and transcendence. That's the complete package of yoga that most people I find are not even aware of. I was not aware of it. I thought yoga was strictly movement. And I've tried yoga a few times in my life. And I, I don't know why I, I after reading this book, I'm going to try it again, because I okay. understand now that it's an entire holistic philosophy. And I didn't realize that the, that it's not just movement. It is an entire lifestyle. It is an entire philosophy way of being. And if you um, look at the literature on yoga, the scholarly literature of yoga, 2% is devoted to the physical part of it. Amazing. And I didn't know that there was a type of yoga called royal yoga. Can you explain that? Yes. Yeah, so royal yoga is the eight limbs of yoga that I just mentioned. Social, okay. emotional intelligence, posture, breathing, meditation, introceptive awareness, Focused attention and transcendence. That's called royal yoga, Raja yoga. There's something called karma yoga, which means love in action, selfless service. There's okay. something called yoga, which is the yoga of understanding of the intellect. And there's another uh, yoga called bhakti yoga, which is just love as the only motivation for doing whatever you want. The word yoga is related to the Sanskrit word yuj, which means union with the divine in you, which is the divine in everybody else. So yoga is actually the same word as the English word yoke. Yoking, okay. you yoke yourself to the source of all existence. In the Bible, when Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, he's talking about yoga because he then goes on to say, I'm connected to the source, which he oh, calls wow. You know, so it's there in every tradition. And there's three myths that you bring up in the book that people may not understand at first. So we'll unpack them. You said that there are three myths human beings hold. Myth number one, we are captive inside our body. Myth number two, we are created out of matter. And myth number three, your brain is doing the thinking. So most people would hear that and say, what's the problem? Those are facts. I learned that in school. So can you unpack that a little? Because you learn something in school doesn't become a fact. 
just because everybody believes in it or even science says it is not a fact. It's not a fact. So who are you? Are you the body? If you say I'm my body, then you have to tell me which body are you talking about? The fertilized egg that mm-hmm. you started this life with, the embryo, the zygote, the baby, the toddler, the teenager, this one at 48 years, the one that will be older much later, all the way to dusty death. So the idea that you have a body is just an idea. There's no such thing. It's an activity in your consciousness. And your consciousness is not in your brain because you can change your brain by making choices. We call that neuroplasticity. You can even activate the genes in a certain direction by making choices. Your brain is created by genes, but it's sculpted by experiences and you can choose your experiences. So you're not in the body. The body is in you. You're not in the brain. The brain is in you. The brain is not the creator of thought. The brain represents the biological correlates of thought. And what's the last one? You're not, so you're not captive in your body. Right. So oh, that we're, that we are created out of matter. There's no such thing as matter. Matter is a human name for a perceptual activity in human consciousness. Now, this takes a long time to understand. Mm -hmm. But basically, everything that you call reality is a dream. You know, everything. Uh, If I asked you what happened to your childhood, you'd say it's a dream. But if I asked you what happened to yesterday, it's a dream. What happened to this morning? It's a dream. What happens to these words? By the time you hear them, they don't exist. The whole thing right. is a dream. You know, right. Wittgenstein, the German philosopher said, we are asleep, a life, our life is a dream. But once in a while, we wake up enough to know that we're dreaming. So that waking up is the process that we call yoga. That's Amazing. what the book is. And you know what else is amazing is that we you were mentioning, are you the baby, are you the toddler, the teenager, the the adult? Well, we've had we've died many times, right? Because every cell I had seven years ago is dead and gone. Yeah. So and my every, body has died. Yeah. And your mind, your teenage mind, I hope, has died. Unless <laughs> you want to run for president. I hope something. so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but isn't that incredible? Most people don't realize that. Birth and death are opposites. Life is the continuum of birth and death. Life is the continuum of what? Birth and death. So birth and death are opposites, not life and death. Life needs birth and death. Just like everything needs an on and an off. You can't have an on without an off. You can't have an off without an on. Everything is a vibration. Everything in creation. If I put my hand on your thigh and I don't move it, after a while, you won't know it's there. But then if I move it again, you'll say, what the heck are you trying to do? You know, all experiences through on-off. There's no experience by without on-off. Every photon that is born dies as soon as it's born. Every thought that is born dies as soon as it is born. The storyline we give it is we call life, but life needs birth and death. Death makes life possible. Without death, there's no birth. Without birth, there's no death. What do we make of memories? So for example, you think about your grandmother or or somebody from your life who passed away many years ago. They're all present in my body right now. Right. As my genes. So my grandmother, if she wasn't here, I wouldn't be able to move my hand. Okay. 
Must but be. what about the pictures? So I have photographs of my grandmother, right? So yeah, I can but, say. But you, maybe there are pictures of her as a baby, as a teenager, as an old right. woman. Which one is the right one? Right. Very and true. If, if you die and go to heaven, which version will you meet? I think I'll meet the version that looks 30 years old and spectacularly gorgeous. <laughs> that means that means that the illusion right. is up to you. Right. You can upgrade the illusion, yes. And you also write, uh, karma no longer touches you when you live in the light. Can you explain that? Karma is conditioning and it's ideas and stories that we hold to be true. So every experience we have, we then interpret it, we create a story and we say it's real. But of course, the same experience you and I have, we could interpret it differently. I could go to Disney World and panic and you would pay a ticket to do it twice. So, mm -hmm. you know, every experience is an interpretation. Karma is the interpretation of past experiences and we get bound out, bound by it. And we don't realize it's a story we made up. And so to break the boundaries of karma, you have to use memories, but not allow memories to use you. When you allow memories to use you, you're a victim. When you use memories, you're a creator. That's the difference. You know, there's a poem of Rumi where he says, why do you stay in prison? Because when the door is wide open, why do you stay in prison? That when the door is wide open, the door, the prison of karma is invisible. So people think there is no door, but there is. It's your creation. Karma is your creation. Well, where did we get this idea of karma being this cosmic punishment? If I make, if I do something bad, I'm going to get karma. That's a, that's a Christian interpretation. You know, everything has to come out of guilt. Okay. <laughs> true. The, whole, the whole institution is built on guilt. Um, you make money out of it. It's called confession. Yes. I want to talk about some of the things that people talk about when it comes to creation versus matter, all of that stuff. So if somebody says, well, that's easy for you to say, but I was just diagnosed with a disease or I'm having financial problems or my marriage is breaking up and it feels very real, <laughs> you know, so how, how do I, how do I make sense of that? And how do I use what you're teaching to improve my situation? Well, listen, there's no one in the world who has not suffered. No mm -hmm. one. No one who has not lost a family member to disease or death. It's universal. Suffering is universal. But so is joy universal. It all depends where your attention is. You cannot deny the fact that everyone has to. I came to this country with zero dollars. Now people say I'm privileged. Well, mm -hmm. I made that happen by making the right choices, right? Right. And so, but even there, people say, oh, you're spiritual. You're not supposed to make money. Another guilt trip, you know. So uh, in a country where the American dream is supposed to be the idealist vision that everybody has, but then they say, oh, you're spiritual and you're not supposed to make money. These are all ideas people have. So 
as long as there's happiness, there will mm-hmm. be unhappiness. As long as there's up, there will be a down. As long as there's hot, there will be a cold. <laughs> All experiences by contrast. But if you understand that, then you can make the choices that bring you happiness. And happiness is not the same as joy. You know, happiness is the opposite of unhappiness. Joy is fundamental. You see that in a child, in a baby, before they understand all these social constructs, what you're supposed to do, this and that. Baby is naturally joyful, naturally curious, naturally adventurous, naturally uh, risk-taking, naturally friendly. You know, the other day I was... um, in uh, Disney World, I was actually in uh, in a train from the airport to the baggage claim, and everybody was stressed, wearing masks, screaming at each other. There was a mother with a baby in a in a trolley, and uh, she was also stressed. She was screaming at somebody. That little baby in the in the cart was looking around, smiling and happy. And finally, it caught my eye and gave me the biggest smile ever. Okay, it was totally independent of what was going on. <laughs> that is joy. Do you think we still all have that same joy in us? If you return to innocence, yes. Okay, yes. You mentioned that in the book, Returning to Innocence. How yes. does one return to innocence in this world? Get rid of every idea that you hold to be true. Ask yourself, who am I? What do I want? What's my purpose? What am I grateful for? Don't worry about the answers. Life will move you into the answers. And how do you explain, because I suffer from this, how do you explain panic attacks and anxiety? What is that? A learned phenomenon. A learned phenomenon. Sometime in childhood, we experienced uh, deep insecurity and uh, felt maybe that uh, we our safety was endangered. A mother might have gone shopping and you might have been wet and crying and there was nobody there, but your mind recorded that. Okay, so that stays with us. Now, as we look at trauma, it's obvious that everybody's had trauma. You have mm-hmm. trauma at birth, you have trauma at childhood, you have trauma during your teenage years, You have trauma from your parents, you have trauma from the news, you have trauma from society. So trauma is there. In some cases, it's much more. In some cases, it's much less. Right. Unless you become aware of it. And the only way to get rid of that is actually to embrace it. You know, when you feel these panic attacks, when you feel the insecurity, when you feel the anxiety, feel your body, see what's happening and embrace it without judging it. And soon you'll actually go beyond that. You know, they say the way around the fire is not around the fire. It's through the fire. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. And can one practice yoga, just the philosophical part without the physical or just the physical without the philosophical? Or does it really have to be a marriage of both? Ideally speaking, it's a holistic practice and the physical doesn't need to be strenuous. You know, you just ease into a pose. Don't think that something called the perfect pose, although my poses are pretty perfect. (laughs) How long have you been practicing again? Forever. Forever. Okay. You give a lot of advice, obviously. 
but what is the greatest piece of advice that you've ever received? Shut up. From who? Who? Who told you that? I told myself that because when really? I shut up, I'm at peace. <laughs> Meaning, like shut up the voices in your mind, or shut up yes. what's coming out of your mouth. It's all the same thing. Take time to be silent. Okay. In silence, truth is revealed, not by somebody's advice. Silence is is where the truth lies. Okay. And if you could travel back in time and bear witness to any famous historical event in real time as it was unfolding, where would you go and what would you want to bear witness to? There would be many such instances. It would be the Gettysburg Address by Abraham Lincoln. It would be the Salt March of Mahatma Gandhi. It would be the Sermon on the on the Mount by Jesus Christ. It would be Buddha before he passed on and woke up from this dream that we call life. So mm -hmm. there would be many, many, too many to count. I like those. Um, the last question is, what do you think you came into this life as Deepak Chopra to learn? And what do you think you came here to teach? I came here to try my best to upgrade the illusion. Okay. Is that what you came here to learn as well before teaching it? I mean, did you have, did you always have a knowing or did, was there something that happened that woke you up at some point? Uh, it was a waking up as a physician and seeing all the suffering, okay. but it required the seed of knowing. Okay. That makes sense. And living in the light, when is the book out? Uh, January 3rd, I believe. January 3rd. Okay. Three. Two days okay. from and just one more shout out that people can go to neveralone.love for resources having to do with mental health. And physical health, yes. And physical health, okay. I thank you so much, especially for taking the time during the holidays to speak with me. It was a wonderful interview. Thank you. Enjoyed meeting you, Alison, for the third time. <laughs> All right. Thanks, you guys, for listening. You can follow Deepak Chopra on Instagram at Deepak Chopra. You can follow me on Instagram at the Allison Kugel. If you or anybody you love is suffering with any kind of deep depression or suicidal ideation, there is always help. There is always community. You can go to Deepak's platform at neveralone.love. There is an incredibly helpful interface on that platform. And please pick up a copy of Deepak's latest book, Living in the Light. You will learn everything about the ancient practice of royal yoga and how you can apply every aspect to it, not just the physical, but also the emotional, the spiritual, the intellectual, everything. And it also is, by the way, it does give you some great instruction if you would like to dip your toe into the physical poses of yoga as well. Thank you guys for tuning in. I love you guys. You mean the world to me. And I will catch you on the next go around. Peace. Peace.